0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, a lot going on. Let's get started. we got a couple of obituaries to start us off here. First two are from the Obituary Notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 22, 2023. Anita H. Levinson, February 2, 1934 to January 16, 2023, Author Unknown. Anita Levinson, nee Settleson, died peacefully at home. She is survived by her husband, Burton, her children, Ellen Levinson and Doug Levinson, and her grandchildren, Rachel Karras, Kelsey Levinson, and Trevor Levinson. She is also survived by her brother, M. Kenneth Settleson. She is predeceased by her daughter, Sherry Levinson, and her brother, Matt Settleson. Anita took great pride in Ellen's accomplishments. As an attorney, uh, Ellen dedicated her legal career to public service and to political and philanthropic commitments. As a proud grandmother, Anita was thrilled to see both her oldest daughter, gra- uh, R- oldest granddaughter, Rachel, accomplish her lofty academic goals and to see her younger granddaughter, Kelsey, well on her way to becoming a doctor. She also enjoyed watching her grandson, Trevor, grow into manhood. Anita was born in Akron, Ohio, the daughter of Edwin and Beatrice Settleson. Anita was a full-time partner to her husband and not only was she a motivator in much of what he accomplished but, in fact, an inspiration. Volunteerism was in Anita's blood. She dedicated over a thousand hours to the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center as a volunteer. She was actively involved in the Soviet Jewry involvement in Los Angeles and testified before a congressional committee on behalf of that movement. She also participated in several philanthropic organizations. Anita was very proud of her Jewish heritage, and considered herself to be a patriot. She was honored to be an American. The funeral service will be private. That was Anita H. Levinson, February 2, 1934 to January 16, 2023, Author Unknown. And we have another one here from the Florida, this is called Florida Dita Jacobson, October 27, 1938 to January 6, 2023, Author Unknown. Dita was born in Chicago, the second of three children. Her older sister coined the name because she had trouble saying Florence and the name Dita stuck throughout her life. Her family moved about and settled in Santa Monica in the early 1950s where she attended uh, St. Monica and Notre Dame High School. She graduated uh, Northwestern University where she studied for a career in dental hygiene and met a future husband and prominent Beverly Hills dentist. Raymond Jacobson, 1930-2015 After beginning her career in 1959 as a dental hygienist in Pacific Palisades, Dita married Ray in 1960 and had three children, Eric, James, and Nancy over the next 12 years. She was a devoted wife and mother who juggled the many aspects of parenting with joy and dedication. When she wasn't working, she filled her time attending to her children's activities during charitable endeavors. She was continually active in many charities during her life, including the National Charity League Los Angeles Founder Chapter, the EBLE, Santa Monica Westside Charity League, ARCS Foundation, as well as being a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Dita always exhibited exceptional artistic talent and the, this ability she pursued with passion her entire life. She ended a drawing contest in her early teens and won first prize, which was personally presented to her by Walt Disney. In the early 1970s, she signed up for a class at, Brentwood art, uh, at the Brentwood Arts Center, and she had retired from, den- from dental hygiene and was looking to rekindle her love of art. This proved to be her calling. Within a year, Dina was offered a teaching job at the art school, which she happily accepted. She had a knack for teaching and quickly became a fixture at the Brentwood Art Center. Her tenure as a teacher lasted more than 45 years. During that time, she not only taught countless students art history, she created several series of original artwork. Most of these series received gallery exhibitions, including a Barnsdale Art Gallery exhibit in 1992. Later, she was a founding member of TAG, the artist's gallery. Additionally, she fed her love of travel by coordinating several art tours and painting excursions to France and Italy uh, with students and colleagues. Well loved by her students and generous for third time, she always helped them to advance their own individual styles and achieve their desired results. For more information on Dita's art career, please visit www.ditajacobson.com. Dita is survived by her three children and a brother, as well as several nieces and nephews. Her passing has dimmed all of our lives by the loss of her vibrant smile, sparkling sense of humor, and vivid inner light. An internment ceremony is scheduled for 2 p.m. January 30, 2023 at Woodlawn Cemetery in Santa Monica for family, friends, students, and colleagues who may wish to attend. That was Florence Dita Jacobson, October 27, 1938 to January 6, 2023, author unknown, and both of those were from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. All right, and here is one more obit from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 26, 2023. Joel Atschul, Al- uh, December 21st, 1933 to January 23rd, 2023, author unknown. Joel Atschul Al- was born in Brooklyn, on December 21, 1933 to Al and Claire Altschul. They moved to Los Angeles when he was 13 years old right after Joel's bar mitzvah. Joel worked hard from a young age, delivering newspapers and working for a local pharmacy. He attended UCLA and dropped out after his sophomore year to help his father with the famous department store downtown. He then served a year in the army and it was his best friend from... Uh, from his troop sid castor who set him up on a blind date with herma goldstein may her memory be a blessing after the first date herma told their mother that she was going to marry joel nine months later on uh, november 1st 1958 they were married in brentwood at the brentwood country club herma used to say if it weren't for me joel would still be on a street in his parents house they loved each other They loved he charged dearly and were married for 63 years. While working at the famous department store, Joel had the idea to use the sewing machines there to turn some extra nylon from tent repairs into duffel bags. Joel bought his samples to a trade show in in Las Vegas in 1973, where he received his first purchase order from Los Angeles Long Beach Surplus for $3,000. He thought he had won the lottery. This sense of something bigger led him uh, led him to found outdoor products. Joel prided himself on making his products right here in Los Angeles and created a successful business. Like his father did for him, Joel brought his son Andrew into the company. Andrew has worked at Outdoor Products for over 30 years and is now CEO. Joel was always humble, sharp, and quietly confident. He used to run 10Ks, was an excellent tennis player. Loved playing poker with his buddies. He was a respected businessman and a lovely family man. He was predeceased by his sister, Iris Schiffman, and will be missed by an extended family, by extended family including Carol and Richard Suckman, uh, Claudia and Robert Goldstein, Nancy and Perry Schul, and numerous nieces and nephews. He is survived by family members whom he loved with all his heart. His daughter Julie Schoenfield, Jeff, and his sons Andrew Schul Julie, and Mark Atschul. He is ad- is adored by he adored his grandchildren Kate and Max Schoenfield, and Liv and Winston Atschul, with whom he was very close. He will be deeply missed. May his memory be a blessed, forever be a blessing. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation to the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, www.jewishla.org/give. That was Joel Atschul, December uh, 21st, 1933 to January 23rd, 2023. From the Obituary Notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 26, 2023. Alright, we have one Israel story here. From the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 26, 2023. A U.S. link to aid for Israeli radicals by Yuri Blau and Tia Goldenberg. Jerusalem. An Israeli group raising funds for Jewish extremists convicted of some of the country's most notorious hate crimes is collecting tax-exempt donations from Americans, according to findings by the Associated Press and the Israeli investigative platform Shamrim. The records in the, in the case suggest that Israel's far right is gaining a new foothold in the United States. Uh, the amount of money raised through a U.S. profit is not known. U.S. nonprofit is not known, but the AP and Shomrim have documented the money trail from New Jersey to imprisoned Israeli radicals, who who include Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's assassin and people convicted in deadly attacks on Palestinians. This overseas fundraising arrangement has made it easier for the Israeli group Shalom Azraik to collect money from Americans. Who can make their contributions through the U.S. nonprofit with a credit card and claim a tax deduction? Many Israeli causes and groups, including hospitals, universities, and charities, raise money through U.S. based arms. But having the strategy adopted by a group assisting Jewish radicals raises legal and moral questions. It also comes against the backdrop of a new far right government in Israel led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in which ultra-nationalists and extremist lawmakers have gained unprecedented power. According to Shlom Asriak's promotional uh, pamphlets, its beneficiaries include Yigal Amir who assassinated Rabin in 1995, Uh, Amram Ben Yulil convicted in the 2050 murder of a Palestinian baby and his parents in an arson attack, and Yosef Haim Ben David, convicted of abducting and killing a 16-year-old Palestinian boy in Jerusalem in 2014. This group also assists an extremist, ultra-Orthodox man who fatally stabbed the 16-year-old Israeli girl at Jerusalem's gay pride parade in 2015. Shlom Asraik, or The Well-Being of Your Prisoners, has been raising money in Israel since at least 2018, and was officially registered as a non-profit in 2020 by a group mostly consisting of Israelis from hard-line settlements in the West Bank. At least five of the group's seven founders have been questioned by Israeli authorities for crimes related to their activities against Palestinians. Some have been arrested and charged. Recipients of its largesse have hailed the group for coming through in difficult times. You have no idea how much you help us, the uh, uh, the family of Ben Uriel, Ulil, who is serving three life sentences, wrote in a handwritten letter, book, hand letter posted to the group's on the group's Facebook page. Being a relatively new organization, Stoma Asriyek provides little data in its official filing to Israel's nonprofit registry and does not indicate how much money it has raised. But in its promotional flyers, as reported recently by Israeli Channel 13 News, the organization indicated that it has raised about 150 shekels. About $43,000. Israeli nonprofits have long sought funding abroad, with the U.S. a major source. Figures published by Noga Zivan, a consultant for nonprofits in Israel, indicate that between 2018 and 2020, Jewish American donations organizations have donated $2 billion to Israel annually. Israeli right-wing groups have long raised funds in the U.S., but Diver Kariv. A former official with Shin Bet, Israel's domestic security agency, which deals with Jewish violence, said it was unusual for extremist Jews such as the ones who run Shlom uh, Asrik to do so. He said the group appears to have taken a cue from other far-right Israeli groups, particularly Kach, an anti-Arab racist group that was once banned as a terrorist organization in the U.S., but that Kariv said was adept at raising money there decades ago. Etamar Ben Giver, a senior cabinet minister in Israel's new far right government, is a disciple of Koch's founder, Rabbi Meir Kahane, who was once barred from Israeli politics. It is unclear uh, when Shlomo Asrek began working with the New Jersey based world of Tzedakah, a nonprofit that says it works to enable any individual or organization to raise money for their specific cause. Donors in the U.S. can enter the Shlom Asriq site and click on a link that takes them to a donation page hosted by World of Tzedakah. According to the World of Sadaka site, fundraisers must list a rabbi and a reference and receive approval from a Lakewood, New Jersey religious committee. There is a monthly charge and a fee for transferring funds to any Israel bank, Israeli bank account, the site says. World of Tzedakah. Uh, supports other charitable ventures, most of them focus on assisting Jewish families in distress, according to its website. Ellen April, an expert on tax and charities at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, said convicted criminals and their families could be considered in need and qualify as, permissible charitable, as a permissible charitable purpose. While supporting other, uh, someone convicted of acts of terrorism could be seen as encouraging criminal activity, That would need to be proved," she said. Marcus Owens, a lawyer who ran the Internal Revenue Services nonprofit unit in the 1990s, took a tougher stance. The U.S. Department of Justice views assistance to the families of terrorists as a form of material support for terrorism, he said. Repeated attempts to reach Shlom Asryk were unsuccessful. There was a U.S. link to Aid for Israeli Radicals by Yuri Blau and Tia Goldenberg, From the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 26, 2023. Blau writes for Sharmim and Goldenberg for the Associated Press. This article was published in partnership with Sharmim, the Center for Media and Democracy in Israel. All right, here's some more international news from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 22, 2022. Zelensky honors helicopter crash victims from the Associated Press Kiev, Ukraine Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky held an emotional meeting Saturday morning with the families of those who died in a helicopter crash last week. Zelensky spoke with family members of seven of those killed in Wednesday's crash in Bravery, a suburb of Kiev, the capital. The helicopter carrying Interior Minister Denis Monastirsky and other top officials slammed into a kindergarten building in the residential suburb, killing him and about a dozen other people, including a child on the ground. Monastrinsky, who oversaw the country's police and emergency services, was the most senior official killed since Russia invaded Ukraine. His death along with the rest of his ministry's leadership and the entire helicopter crew was the second major calamity in five days uh, to befall Ukraine. After a Russian missile, missile struck an apartment building in the southeastern city of Dnipro, killing dozens of civilians. At the somber service in Kiev, Zelensky and his and his wife laid flowers on each of the seven coffins draped in the blue and yellow flags of Ukraine. Zelensky then spoke briefly with the families as a small orchestra played a mournful adagio. The cause of the crash is not known. Zelensky has said. That only that it happened because the country is at war that view was repeated by russian stefan stefanchuk Ch- uh, chairman of ukraine's parla- parliament speaking after the service all this would not have happened if not for this terrible and undeclared war which the russian federation is waging against ukraine stefanchuk said therefore we must remember this and not we must remember this and not forget these people because for ukraine and ukrainians Every lost life is a great tragedy. Russia's war in Ukraine, nearing the end of its 11th month, is in a state of deadlock, with Ukrainian forces probably achieving small gains in the northeast near the town of Kremena, while Russian forces have likely been reconstituting in the eastern town of Soledadir after claiming to seize it earlier in the week, the British Defense Ministry said Saturday. There is a realistic possibility of local Russian advances around Bakhmut, an eastern city whose capture would give Moscow a long-awaited victory after months of setbacks, the British Ministry said in its regular tweet updates. Twitter updates. Fierce battles for Bakhmut have been raging and three civilians were killed by Russian shelling in, in that area of the eastern Donetsk region, the deputy head of Ukraine's presidential office reported Saturday morning. In total, five civilians were killed and 13 wounded by Russian shelling over 24 hours in Ukraine's east and south, where active fighting is ongoing, Kriyla said in a Telegram post. Ukrainian forces overnight repelled Russian attacks in Bakhmut and other parts of the country's embattled east, the military said in a Facebook update Saturday morning. A 60-year-old woman died after Russian shells hit her home in the northeastern Kharkiv region, a lo- uh, local governor Ola Stingubov said in a telegram update. He added that four other people were wounded in in the province. One woman, one woman was also killed in the southern Zaporizhia region where Russian forces launched more than 160 shelling attacks overnight. Governor alexander starwick reported in a telegram post he said that 21 cities and towns were targeted and that two other civilians sustained injuries that was Zelensky honors helicopter crash victims from the associated press out of the world section of the los angeles times sunday january 22nd 2023 well this past friday the 27th was international holocaust remembrance day and let's stick with ukraine uh, from this, for this one right here, Saturday, January 28, 2023, Ukraine looms over Holocaust ceremony. For survivors of death camps, Russian invasion evokes painful comparisons. By Vanessa Gera, Auschwitz, Poland, Auschwitz-Birkenau survivors and other uh, and other mourners commemorated the 78th anniversary Friday of the Nazi German death camps liberation them expressing horror that war has again shattered peace in Europe and the lesson of never again is being forgotten. The former concentration and extermination camp was located in the town of Oswiecim in southern Poland, which was under the occupation of German forces during World War II and became a place of systematic murder of Jews, Poles, Soviet prisoners of war, Roma, and and others targeted for elimination by Adolf Hitler and his henchmen in all some 1.1 million people were killed at the vast complex before it was liberated by soviet troops on january 27 1945. today the site with its barracks barbed wire and ruins of gas chambers stands as one of the world's most recognized symbols of evil and a site of pilgrimage for millions jewish and christian prayers for the dead were recited at the memorial site which lies only 185 miles from Ukraine, where Russian aggression is creating death and destruction, a conflict on the minds of many this year. Standing here today at this place of remembrance, Birkenau, I follow with horror the news from the East that the Russian army, which liberated us here, is waging a war there in Ukraine. Why? Why? Lamented survivor, Zdzislawa Walers- Walerski during observa- observances Friday. Pyotr Zwinski, Auschwitz State Museum director, compared Nazi crimes to those the Russians have committed in Ukrainian towns, including Buka and Marupol. He said that they were inspired by a similar sick megalomania that free people must not remain indifferent. Being silent means giving voice uh, to the perpetrators, Zwinski said. Remaining indifferent is tantamount to condoning murder. Russian President Vladimir Putin attended observances marking the 60th anniversary of the camp's liberation in 2005. This year, no Russian official was invited because of the attack on Ukraine. Valentina Matvienko, Speaker of Russia's Upper House of Parliament, deplored that as a cynical move. They refused to invite the Liberators so they could pay tribute to the memory of the victims, she said. Of course, this is very worrying. Rabbi Bert Lazar, one of Russia's two chief rabbis, said not having any Russian invitees was a humiliation for sure because we perfectly know and remember the role of the Red Army in the liberation of Auschwitz. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky marked the event in a social media post, alluding to his own country's situation. We know and remember that indifference kills along with hatred, said Zelensky, who is Jewish. Indifference and hatred are always capable of creating evil together. That is why it is so important that everyone who values life should show determination when it comes to saving those whom uh, hatred seeks to destroy. An Israeli teacher, Yossi Michael. Play, uh, paying tribute to the victims with the Teachers Union delegation said it was important to remember of the past, and while he said what is happening in Ukraine is terrible, he felt each case is unique and shouldn't be compared. Italian Premier Giorgia Meloni, whose Brothers of Italy party has its roots in the post-World War II neo-fascist Italian social movement, called the Holocaust the abyss of humanity, an evil that touched also our country, with the infamy of the radical laws of 1938. Bogdan Bartanowski, a Pole who was 12 when he was transported to Auschwitz, said his first images he saw on television last February of refugees fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine triggered traumatic memories. He was stunned seeing a little girl in a large crowd of refugees holding her mother with one hand and grasping a teddy bear in the other. It was literally a blow to the head from me because i suddenly saw after almost 80 years what i had seen in a freight car when i was being transported to auschwitz a little girl was sitting next to me hugging a doll to her chest said bartowinski now 91. bartonowski was among several survivors of auschwitz who spoke about their experiences to journalists thursday another Stefania Wernick, who was born at Auschwitz in November 1944, less than three months before its liberation, spoke of Auschwitz being a hell on earth. She said when she was born, she was so tiny that the Nazis tattooed her number 89136 on her thigh. She was washed in cold water, wrapped in rags, and subjected to medical experiments. Yet her mother had abundant milk and they both survived. After the war, Her mother returned home and reunited with her husband, and the whole village came to look at us and said it's a miracle. She appealed for no more fascism, which brings death, genocide, crimes, slaughter, and loss of human dignity. Among those who attended Friday's commemorations was Doug Emhoff, the husband of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. Emhoff, the first Jewish person to be married to one of the top two nationally elected U.S. officials, bowed his head at an execution wall at Auschwitz, where he left a wreath of flowers in the US, and the, the US flag's colors and the words from the people of the United States of America. The Germans established Auschwitz in 1940 for Polish prisoners. Later they expanded the complex, building death chambers and crematoria where Jews from across Europe were brought by train to be murdered. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said the suffering of six million innocently murdered Jews remains unforgotten, as does the suffering of the survivors. We recall our historic responsibility on Holocaust Memorial Day so that our never again endures in in future, he wrote on Twitter. The German parliament was holding a memorial event focused this year on those who were persecuted for their sexual orientation. Thousands of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transsexual people were incarcerated and killed by the Nazis—a fate only publicly recognized decades after the war. Elsewhere in the world, on Friday, Friday events—elsewhere in the world on Friday—events were planned to mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day, an annual commemoration established by a United Nations resolution in 2005. That was Ukraine looms over a Holocaust ceremony by Vanessa Gura from the los angeles times saturday january 28 2023 gura writes for the associated press all right here's another one from the perspective section of the los angeles times saturday january 28 2023 world war ii era map sparks treasure hunt in dutch village prospectors hope to find stolen jewelry supposedly buried by nazi soldiers by alexander Fertula. omren netherlands A hand-drawn map with a red X perpetually showing the location of a buried stash of precious jewelry looted by the Nazis from a blown-up bank vault has sparked a modern-day treasure hunt in a tiny Dutch village more than three-quarters of a century later. Wielding metal detectors, shovels, and copies of the map on cell phones, prospectors have descended on Omren, population 715, about 50 miles southeast of Amsterdam to try to dig up a potential World War II trove based on the drawing first published January 3rd. Yes, it is of course uh, spectacular news that has enthralled the whole village, local resident Marco uh, Ruudvelt said, but not only our village, also people who do not come from here. He said that all kinds of people have been spontaneously digging in places where they think that treasure is buried with a metal detector. It wasn't immediately clear if authorities could claim the loot, if it was found, or if a prospector could keep it. So far, nobody has reported finding anything. The treasure hunt began this year when the Dutch National Archives published, as it does every January, thousands of documents for historians to pore over. Most of them went largely unnoticed. But the map, which includes a sketch of a cross section of a country road and another with a red X at the base of one of three trees, was an unexpected viral hip that briefly shattered the midwinter calm of Omran." We're quite astonished about the story itself, but the attention it's getting is surprising as well, National Archives researcher Annette Wilkins said as she carefully showed off the map. Photos ran on social media in early January showing people digging holes more than three feet deep, sometimes on private property, in the hope of unearthing a fortune. Burin, the municipality uh, that Armand falls under, published a statement on its website pointing out that a, a ban on metal detection is in place for the municipality and warned that the area was a World War II front line. Searching there is dangerous because of possible unexploded bombs, land uh, landmines, and shells, the municipality said in a statement. We advise against going to look for the Nazi treasure. The latest treasure hunters aren't the first ones to leave the village empty-handed. The story starts, Wilkins said, In the summer of 1944, in the Nazi-occupied city of Arnhem, made famous by the star-studded movie a bridge too far when a bomb hit a bank pierced its vault and scattered its contents including gold jewelry and cash over the street german soldiers stationed nearby pocket what they can what they can get and keep it in ammunition boxes Wilkins said as world war ii nears its end in 1945 the netherlands german occupiers were pushed back by allied advances The soldiers who had been in Anaheim found themselves in Almren and decided to bury the loot, Four ammunition boxes, and then just some jewelry that was kept in handkerchiefs or even cash money folded in. And they buried it right there, she said, signing an account by a German soldier who was interviewed after the war by Dutch military authorities in Berlin and who was responsible for the map. The Archive doesn't know if the soldier is still alive and hasn't released his name, citing European Union privacy regulations. Dutch authorities, using the map and the soldier's account, went hunting for the loot in 1947. The first time, the ground was frozen solid and they made no headway. When they went back after the thaw, they found nothing, Wilkins said. After the unsuccessful attempts... The German soldier said that he believed that someone else had already excavated the treasure, Wilkins said. That detail was largely overlooked by treasure hunters who descended on Amman in the days after the map's publication. On a recent visit to the village, there were no diggers to be seen as peace and quiet as returned to Amman. But the village's brief rush with fame left a sour taste for some residents. Ria van uh, Nürbos said she didn't believe in the treasure story, but understood why some did. If they hear something, they'll head toward it, she said. But I don't think it's good that they just dug into the ground and things like that. That was World War II-era Map Sparks Treasure Hunt in Dutch Village by Alexander Fertula from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 28, 2023. Fertula writes for the Associated Press. All right, and now back home. We we go to this one. From the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 22, 2023. Treasury Secretary warns debt standoff risks self-imposed calamity. Yellen, visiting Africa, says Congress is likely to ultimately raise the borrowing limit. By Fatima Hussein, Dakir Senegal. U.S. Secretary Treasurer... Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen said Saturday that she expects Congress will ultimately vote to raise America's debt limit, but that House Republicans' demands for spending cuts in return are very irresponsible and risk creating a self-imposed calamity for the global economy. The Biden administration and GOP lawmakers have been at loggerheads uh, over increasing the federal government's legal borrowing capacity. The government hit the current... uh, $31.381 trillion debt cap Thursday, forcing the Treasury Department to take extraordinary accounting steps to keep the government running. In an interview with the Associated Press during her trip to Africa, Yellen said that threatening to withhold approval for a higher debt limit unless there are spending cuts was a very irresponsible thing to do and could have serious consequences even before the day of reckoning. It is possible for markets to become quite concerned about whether or not the U.S. will pay its bills, she said, pointing to the negative economic uh, effects of the 2011 debt uh, showdown. A default, Yellen said, would be a self-imposed calamity in the United States and the world economy. The Treasury's extraordinary measures mean the government should be able to operate into June, Uh, when the limit must be increased to avoid potentially significant economic damage. Yellen said she has not spoken with newly elected House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield. He has yet to spell out the size and targets of the cuts he, he contends are needed. President Biden and administration officials have called for a clean increase to the debt limit, one that is not linked to cuts saying an extended impasse could lead to a deep recession that would echo worldwide if faith is lost in the U.S. government's credit. Congress needs to understand that this is about paying bills that have already been incurred by decisions with this and past Congresses, and it's not about new spending, Yellen said. She said she believes in making sure debt levels are sustainable, but it can't be negotiated over whether or not we're going to pay our bills. Yellen says she believes the situation ultimately will be diffused because lawmakers can appreciate the escalating danger if the federal government is unable to pay its bills, crashing financial markets, uh, mass firings, and an economic downturn that could jeopardize America's standing in the world. The Treasury Secretary said officials from the White House and the Department are meeting to discuss possible paths forward and we will have discussions with members of Congress to try to understand what they see as a path forward. The White House said Friday that Biden looks uh, forward to discussing a range of topics with McCarthy, but did not mention an invitation or a date for a meeting. Yellen said the administration's position remains to not negotiate over the debt limit. She did not detail possible administration strategies to ensure the ceiling is raised. Congress has to do it, she said. It has to be done. It can't be something that's contingent on cuts. Yellen sat down for the interview Saturday in the middle of a a continent-spanning trip in which she met with her Chinese counterpart in Switzerland before heading to Senegal, Zambia, and South Africa. The Biden administration is signaling support for improving the economies of African countries, many of which have young populations that will make those nations uh, the drivers of growth in decades to come. At an African uh, nation summit in Washington last month, Biden said he would visit the continent this year. Before the interview, Yellen went to Senegal's Goury Island, where she toured a building known as the House of Slaves that was a center for the Atlantic slave trade that defined much of U.S. history. The economist and former Federal Reserve Chair has emphasized her desire to reduce racial and income inequality, an element of the systemic racism tied to slavery and its aftermath of segregation. For Democrats, the issue is not just a matter of social justice, but political pragmatism, given that black voters are a key constituency. Yellen said the administration has not turned to reparation payments or programs for slaves' descendants. We have a program to try to address these issues that involves many positive steps and adjustments and increasing opportunities, she said. The administration is trying to appeal to African countries on moral terms, saying aid and loans from the U.S. will be transparent and fair in ways that Chinese investments have not. Relations between the U.S. and China, the world's two largest economies, have become increasingly antagonistic amid China's friendship with Russia, the persistence of the coronavirus, and OPA globalization that has given way to national security priorities. The last two U.S. administrations have challenged China's trade practices, with the Biden administration limiting advanced computer chip exports as it tries to boost the U.S. sector we want to make sure that we don't create the same problems that chinese investment has sometimes created here that we have projects that really bring broad-based benefits to the african people and don't leave a legacy of unsustainable debt Yellen said she had been struck by a sense of dynamism and optimism among all of the government officials and private sector people she had she had met in senegal she pointed to female entrepreneurs who have received received seed money through the Senegalese government. There's a kind of vibrancy about the country and a can-do spirit that we saw, Yellen said. They're coming up with very innovative and original ideas about what they can do to both satisfy local needs and find a global market. That was Treasury Secretary Warren's debt standoff risked self-imposed calamity by Fatima Hussein. From the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 22, 2023. Hussein writes for the Associated Press. AP writer Josh Boak in Baltimore contributed to this report. And now we move on to a change in position. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 23, 2023. Jeff Zients, Z-I-E-N-T-S, is expected to be named as Biden's Chief of Staff. The administration's former COVID-19 response czar will replace Ron Klain by Zeke Miller, Michael Balsamo, and Seung min Kim. Washington. President Biden is expected to name Jeff Zients, who ran the administration's response to the COVID-19 pandemic at the start of Biden's term as chief of staff, according to two people familiar with the matter. Biden's current top aide, Ron Klain, is preparing to leave the job in coming weeks. Since serving as COVID-19 Response Coordinator, Zients has returned to the White House in a low-profile position to work on staffing matters for the remainder of Biden's term. The two people familiar with the matter were not authorized to publicly discuss Biden's plans before an official announcement and spoke on conditions of anonymity. The Washington Post first reported on Zients' expected appointment. The White House did not respond to requests for comment. They changed at the highest levels uh, of staff comes as Biden passes his two-year uh, mark in office and pivots to a defense stance against a House Republican majority hungry for to investigate his administration's actions and his family. The White House remains mired in controversy over discoveries of classified documents at Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and at his former institute in Washington. The latest tranche of records was uncovered Saturday evening. Biden, 80, is preparing to launch his reelection campaign in the coming weeks, boasted by a string of legislative accomplishments in the first two years of his presidency when Democrats controlled both chambers of Capitol Hill. He is confronting a Republican presidential field that is far from formed, but for now is led by former President Trump, whom Biden defeated in 2020. In addition to Zayn's, the president's main sphere of advisers on politics and legislation will continue to include Presidential Counselor Steve Rischetti, Senior Advisor Mike Donilon, and Anita Dunn, Legislative Affairs Director Louisa Terrell, and Deputy Chiefs of Staff Jen O'Malley Dillon and Bruce Reed. Klein will remain in Biden's political orbit according to a person familiar with his plans. Not unlike the role played by Cedric Richmond, who was the President's first director of the White House Office of Public Engagement and is now a senior advisor at the Democratic National Committee. The outgoing chief of staff was known to be friendly with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, but some liberal critics of Zaints swiftly went on the attack against the appointment even before it was official, highlighting his private sector ties. Jeff Hauser founder and director of the Revolving Door Project, a progressive group that advocates for liberal appointees in government, said Sunday that the selection of Zainz as the top White House aide would not jibe with Biden's Scranton Joe political image. Unfortunately, Zainz is a veteran of private equity, rapacious healthcare providers, and big tech, which set up a fundamental question that could determine Biden's political future. Will a Zaints led executive branch pursue the unpopular misconduct of people like Jeffrey Zaints, Hauser said? It would be against Zaints' character to pursue corporate lawbreaker, lawbreaking, but it is also the only way Biden can retain the mantle of populace against the likes of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Trump. Zaint's vice chairman of Biden's transition operation after his November 2020 election brings significant managerial experience, expertise in government, and the private sector. He was the director of the National Economic Council during the Obama administration and acting director of the Office of Management and Budget. The longtime manager, management consultant development of Mr. Fixit reputation. Developed a Mr. Fixit reputation, tapped to lead the Obama administration's efforts to repair healthcare.gov after the bungled rollout of the site in fall 2013. Zaints also served as a top executive at Advisory Board Company, a Washington consulting firm. Former President Obama enlisted Zaints in 2009 to eliminate the backlog in applicants for the Cash for Clunkers program. Which offered rebates to drivers who swapped old cars for fuel-efficient vehicles. Zainz later took on a similar challenge to smooth sign-ups for an updated version of the GI Bill. Another expected perk for White House aides, Zainz, who was an initial investor in Call Your Mother, a bagel shop in Washington, had a pension for hosting Bagel Wednesdays for staffs. Zainz invested divested his shares before joining the White House in 2021. Zainz and his deputy on the White House's pandemic response team, Natalie Quinlan, left the Biden administration in April. Biden thanked him for stunning and consequential progress battling the pandemic. When Jeff took this job, less than 1% of Americans were fully vaccinated. Fewer than half our schools were open, and unlike much of the developed world, America lacked any at-home COVID tests, Biden said when the White House announced Zion's departure last year. Today, almost 80% of adults are fully vaccinated. Over 100 million are boosted. Virtually every school is open, and hundreds of millions of at-home tests are distributed every month. Those GIFs Science is expected to be named as Biden's chief of staff by Zeke Miller, Michael Balsamo, and Sung Min Kim from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 23rd, 2022, 23, 2023. Miller, Balsamo, and Kim write for the Associated Press. All right, we have one more national story here from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, no, Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Blinken steps into volatile conflict in a Caucasus region. U.S. demands that Azerbaijan open a disputed corridor for Armenia to access Nagorno-Karabakh by Tracy Wilkinson, Washington. Wading into a festering conflict in the volatile Caucasus region, the United States top diplomat on Monday demanded that Azerbaijan open a disputed corridor to Armenia before its closure results in a humanitarian disaster. The Lachin Corridor is the only land link between Armenia and the breakaway enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is within Azerbaijan but populated by ethnic Armenians. The two countries have frequently clashed over the territory. A war two years ago killed nearly 7,000 soldiers and displaced tens of thousands of civilians in a matter of weeks. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken telephoned Azerbaijan's president, Ilham Aliyev, to urge the immediate reopening of the four-mile corridor to commercial traffic, spokesman Ned Price said. He underscored that the risk of a humanitarian crisis undermined prospects for a peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Price said. The Biden administration is under pressure from some members of Congress who have voiced support for Armenian causes, such as labeling the early 20th century slaughter of Armenians under the Ottoman Empire as a genocide. In a letter to Blinken 11 days ago, Senator Robert Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, who chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, accused Azerbaijan of blocking the movement of 120,000 Nagorno-Karabakh residents, effectively holding them hostages. This blockade is imposing devastation on an already vulnerable region, Menendez wrote, by creating severe food and medicine shortages over the last month. The letter was co-signed by Senator Jack Reed, Democrat of Rhode Island, who chairs the Senate Armed Services Committee. Azerbaijan maintains that transit is being disrupted by protesters who are angry over illegal mining in the area, perpetually by Armenians. But Menendez and other U.S. and European officials and pro-Armenian activists in the U.S. say the blame lies with Aliyev. The truce in late 2020 was brokered in large part by Russia, which deployed a contingent of troops to keep the peace. However, by most accounts, they have not acted to open the corridor, leaving the, leaving to questions, leading to questions about their role. Some observers think the war in Ukraine has sapped Russia's willingness to provide robust monitoring in Azerbaijan and, and Armenia. But officials in the U.S and Europe worry that Azerbaijan and Armenia could easily slip back into armed conflict which could spark a wider war. Russia was traditionally an ally of Armenia and Azerbaijan is backed by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization member Turkey. As a further complication, the US is at odds with Turkey on several issues including NATO expansion and fighter jets that Ankara wants to purchase. Additionally, Turkey has become an increasingly fri- increasingly friendly with Moscow. Blinken met with former Minister of Armenia and Azerbaijan in, Dece- in September on the sidelines of the. US UN General Assembly. A brief spasm of fighting had broken out, but the meeting apparently produced little more than a pledge to work for peace without a roadmap for doing so. That was Blinken steps into volatile conflict in the Caucasus region by Tracy Wilkinson. From the royal section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, January 24, 2023. Okay, now let's go to this special interest story here from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 22, 2023. At 109, Moray Pushes Back on the Limits of Age by Steve Lopez. Morey Markov didn't respond right away when I emailed him recently, which made me worry a bit. So I reached out to his son, Steve Markoff, who reassured me that his father was fine and about to celebrate his hundred ninth birthday. He is amazing, Steve said. He watches CNN and we talk politics. He has a solid grasp of what is going on. I met Maury a decade ago when he sent an email inviting me to have a cup of coffee with him at the LA Department of Water and Power cafeteria across the street from his downtown condo. Since then, we've stayed in touch and he's been busy. At 100, the retired machinist and appliance repairman had his first art show when a gallery owner discovered his collection of scrap metal sculptures. At 103, he finished a memoir titled Keep Breathing, his answer to anyone who asked him the secret to a long life. Murray is a shot of inspiration for me, and for anyone who wants to believe it's possible to keep pushing back against the inevitable. But at the same time, I don't know if I'd have the courage or desire to last into triple digits. The privilege of aging does not come without compromise and loss, and I doubt I'd be very good at it either. UCLA psychologist Steven Sidorop says that as the population of aging people swells, we d- we do well to consider how we live in addition to how long we live. We don't want to simply extend old age if it means more years of disability and dementia," Sidorov said. Increasing one's health span, unlike life span, means staying healthy and functioning as long as possible, and reducing the time at the end of life where you are disabled in one way or another. Murray is blessedly beating the odds, still relatively healthy and sharp. But the man who used to enjoy world travel and touring Los Angeles by bus and on foot has physical limitations now he's lost much of his hearing and has around the clock care from a team of aides. steve who is approaching 80 and his sister judith hanson 81 watch their father turn the pages of yet another calendar and find themselves reflecting on their own longevity quality of life and the costs of growing old when you see someone you know and love getting old and you see what's happening to them uh, that opens up discussions I'm having with people my age and older, Steve said. His own short-term memory isn't what it used to be, Steve told me, and he's dealing with prostate health issues like so many men his age. Even those who live a healthy, a healthful lifestyle, luck is key and decline is guaranteed as you age, and Steve finds himself reflecting on the non-negotiable nature of mortality. An important topic everyone wants to shove under the rug is the cost of keeping someone alive," he said. "And do they really want to live? Maury certainly does, and luckily he saved and inherit, invested well. And an inheritance helps pay pad their retirement fund. That's a good thing because in his home care costs his home care costs roughly fourteen thousand dollars a month," Judy said. "At that price, most retirees wouldn't have enough money to get to eighty-nine, let alone one hundred nine. So, when so where will they go, and who will care for them? There are so many parts to this whole thing of getting old, said Judith, who lives in Seattle. I don't want to have to depend on someone 24-7. What I want is some sort of group living, where everyone is connected somehow. Steve, who lives on the west side and visits his father once a week, has a similar view. Do I want to live like Dad, who, who's kind of trapped in his condo? I don't know," he said. I might rather be in a place where a bunch of other people are living, even though a lot of them would be dying every day. Maury used to live uh, in a nursing facility in Silver Lake along with his wife Betty, who died in September 2019 at the age of 103. Then came COVID, and Steve and Judith pulled Maury out of where, the, when, the, out when the virus tore through the facility, killing a number of residents. But Murray, a New York native, just keeps landing, uh, keeps adapting to change and even embracing it. The world in all its madness and glory fascinates and infuriates him, just as it always has. He gets up in the morning and reads the LA Times, and later in the day he watches the news on television. He's thinking all the time, Judas said, and often writing down whatever pops into his head. A couple of years ago, when I told Moria I was writing a book about aging and retirement and asked for his thoughts, He said he'd prefer to answer by letter. Not long thereafter, a fat envelope arrived at my house. Inside, I found three separate folded handwritten letters answering my question. He has this intense curiosity about everything, and to me that's what keeps him going, Steve said. During Steve's weekly visits, the routine was for for Maury to hand over his writings, and Steve would have them typed up and added to Maury's blog, which covered everything from a fond memory of a favorite waitress at Cantor's Deli to a withering indictment of Vladimir Putin. A former caretaker once told me Murray was up in the middle of the night writing about the George Floyd murder. One day I picked up 42 handwritten yellow pages from the previous seven days, Steve said. In handwriting, you could actually read. Steve noted that Maury is writing less off often of late, and he's a bit concerned about that. But when I dropped by Maury's 109th birthday party on January 11th, he looked pretty much like the guy I had seen at his 108th birthday party. Maury wears headphones, and I spoke into a microphone so he could hear me. I congratulated him, and we caught up on mutual friends. This and that. He took my hand in his, it was a good, solid squeeze, and introduced me to his caretaker. Rosario Charito Reyes. His level of coping with frustration in the face of life events is enormous, Reyes said. He enjoys every breath. Steve and his wife Jadwiga were at the, at the party, along with Maury's granddaughter, Ellen, and grandson Chris. The family held up gold balloons in the shape of a one, zero, and nine. They posed for pictures with the uh, blue-eyed birthday boy who smiled and gave a thumbs-up. Before he'd finished his, his lunch, Maury wanted to get to the main event. Reyes helped him grab hold of his walker, and Maury had the gang fall behind him in a conga line. He circled the table, counting out the rhythm, one, two, three, with a kick of the left foot, one, two, three, with a kick of the right foot. Steve later told me his father is not inclined toward philosophical conversations about aging. He's more comfortable polishing a memory, offering an unvarnished opinion on the news of the day or a penning of poem to Betty as if to prove that absence truly does make the heart grow fonder. I took a spin through Moore's recent blog posts and found both a celebration of life and a nod to mortality. After he's departed, he says in one, don't cry for me, I've had a full life. In, others, in another, he says, I hope in the next life, I have the same family. Last August, he wrote this. As a practical man, I know at the age of this writing, 108, I don't have far to go. Like Betty, I hope to leave this world with a smile on my face. My daughter Judy says, Dad, you would lived some life. I sure have. Like it or not, I will leave footprints in the shifting sands of time. Millions have done so before me. Good luck. Maury. That was... At 109, Moria Pushes Back on the Limits of Age by Steve Lopez. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. Okay, here's something from the uh, LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. From Sham to Supportive Spouse, My Green Card Wedding Flowered into a Marriage by Vivi Stutz. I came to Los Angeles as a foreign student from Germany to study acting, and I wanted to stay a little longer to dodge bad weather at home and add acting credits to my resume. I didn't have much in the way of funds, no work permit, and my command of English was spotty at the time. I worked in in a Venice Beach hostel as a cleaner for room and no board. And I studied the English vocabulary on my bus rides to the Stella Adler Academy of Acting and Theatre in Hollywood. I mostly lived off peanuts, literally. I needed a green card. I had a dream that I would get married in August. I told my mother back home on the phone, where's the man going to come from? I said, same-sex marriage wasn't in the cards yet and the man I was madly in love with uh, was on hiatus from our relationship. You'll see, she snickered. I began interviewing eligible men in the clubs on Sunset Boulevard or in Venice Beach. And the offers ranged from pay me $5,000 and I'll do it, to I never had a girlfriend but I want one, to you don't mind the drugs, do you? This isn't going to work out, I told my mother. I wanted a green card and a bit of romance not to, commit to a, not to commit a crime while being tied to a psychopath for two years. I pinched pennies to see an immigration lawyer. Every time I got, got in my beat up car to sign the fishy contract, uh, my car broke down. And I had to start saving all over again. I had a dream that I was going to be in a relationship with a man who gave me a kitten even though he didn't like cats. A letter arrived from a friend in Australia. She was spending a year as a foreign student at UCLA when I visited her and fell in love with Southern California. She had broken up with her college boyfriend and he was heading he was headed back home to LA. I remember him. He was a nice guy who drew me maps for bus rides and was patient with my lack of English. She introduced him the first day I stepped off the plane in Los Angeles International Airport. He wanted to live in Germany for two years. Perhaps I could help him? I sure could. He agreed to marry me and live together for the required two years of wedded bliss. We head to Germany soon after. The night before the not really wedding, I got cold feet and almost changed my mind. We won't be married forever my not ready not not really groom assured me we were married at city hall in van nuys dressed, dressed up as punks with fetish bridesmaids to mock the ordeal afterward we barbecued in topanga state park with friends to celebrate that i could stay we moved into a studio in the fairfax district and furnished it with fines off the street added my name to his bank account Because his account had funds and mine didn't, and took lots of pictures of good times together across Southern California to show during the green card interview. My not-really-husband gave me a kitten. He didn't like cats until they changed his mind. Acting school didn't yield a living wage. My not-really-husband offered encouragement and money so I could pursue my Californian passions and start a personal training business in Silver Lake. His art degree from UCLA didn't yield a living wage either, so I supported him through university by finding creative solutions on a budget and moving us from Fairfax to Long Beach and back to Silver Lake until he became a teacher. We never shared a last name. Uh, After a decade of not really being married, I got angry when he called me his wife. I hadn't gotten a ring, so he gave me one. I began fantasizing about going to college as well. Attending university uh, was was out of reach in Germany because my grades had been poor, and by then I was well into my thirties and too old to gain admission to higher education by German standards. My my not-really-husband helped me learn English so I could read textbooks. He He says I taught myself, but his unyielding support opened doors in my mind that had been shut. He tutored me and I received my first A in math. I followed up with a master's degree in counseling psychology and he tutored me in statistics. He supported me with his shiny new wages so I could attend school, work part-time and still fly home to see my aging parents. My parents died shortly before the pandemic and I lost my personal training business due to the COVID-19 shutdowns. The time has come to make good on the agreement that my not really husband could live in Germany for two years. We shipped our belongings and five pets to my mother's home in a small German town during the shutdown. We decided to live as expat digital nomads and I embarked on completing a telehealth internship as a mental health therapist. I never said I'd do. He never proposed. We haven't been married forever, but we celebrated our 23rd anniversary last summer. I'm starting to think that this might turn into my forever. The idea is giving me cold feet. Official commitment is just so traditional even if you love someone. Tradition isn't what I was looking for when I uh, aborted that fateful first flight to Los Angeles, but I'd go for serendipity any time. That was From Sham to Supportive Spots by Vivi Stutz from the LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times Sunday, January 22, 2023. The author is an EMDR therapist and a writer of fiction and nonfiction. She is currently a digital nomad who divides her time between Los Angeles and Germany. Her website is vivystutz.com. LA Affairs chronicles the search for romance and love in its glorious expressions in the LA area. We want to hear your true story. We pay $300 for a published essay. Email LAaffairs at latimes.com. You can find past columns at latimes.com slash LAaffairs. All right, let's get into some entertainment news, starting with this from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. In Therapy with Phil Stutz, Shrink to the Stars. Revelations from a critic's hard to get session with the beloved therapist. The subject of a new doc by his patient, Jonah Hill. By Charles McNulty, theater critic. On a recent Sunday morning, while making what I prayed would be a quick run to target, I received a call from the assistant of Phil Stutz, letting me know that the doctor would be able to see me at 4 p.m. that afternoon. It's not every day that the shrink to the stars finds room in his schedule for a plebeian journalist, so I rushed home with my new utensil organizer, ice trays, and gigantic, gigantic uh, package of paper towels, and rewatched Stutz, the Netflix documentary that Jonah Hill made about his beloved therapist. Stutz's name known for decades among entertainment industry elites circulated more widely after dana goodyear wrote a 2011 new yorker feature about Stutz's work and his collaboration with fellow therapist barry michaels on their book the tools transform your problems into courage confidence and creativity a veteran of psychotherapy i read the book when it came out in 2012. curious about what the authors call their spiritual approach to psychology and wondering if a more action-oriented program might pro- uh, produce results more quickly than my trek through the psychoanalysis, which was just only just getting started after 12 long years, the book engaged, engaged my hopes before it was relegated to a lower bookshelf, where it gathered dust amid a small stack of respectable self-help guides. Hill's documentary, which came out in November, Lays bare his own insecurities and sorrows, including his feelings about his weight and its impact on his intimate relationships. The raw emotion on display in the film and the loving bond between therapist and patient reignited my interest in such as practical psychology, which mixes the tough love of life coaching with the secular mysticism that aims to connect a suffering uh, individual to a higher power. However, that might be, con- however that might be conceived. The film skirts the more ethereal aspects of this work, at least until the end, when the good doctor embarks on what looks like a form of astral projection. Trained as a psych- psychiatrist with a New York University medical degree, Studs is a man of science who follows his intuition. He, he's practiced Pooh Pooh's Freudian Protocol. Indeed, he developed his theories in reaction to what he felt was the navel-gazing passivity of traditional psychotherapy. The antithesis of the silent shrink, he punctuates his gruff remarks with profanities, speaks liberally about his own struggles in a defiant New York accent, and joshes with his patients as though they were a younger sibling. At one point in the film, Stutz teasingly tells Hill that he's been uh, intimate with his mother, a comment that might get a more traditional psychoanalyst defraught. But there's a method to studs maverick madness when Gildier wrote it, her article subtitled a cure for blocked screenwriters Stutz was seeing patients in his modest apartment in a stucco west side building that modeled a monastic simplicity for his high-powered hollywood clientele those days are over you know occupies a luminous layer on a high floor of a gated tower in the century city area his home office where he regularly saw patients until Zoom took over the world, is elegantly uh, appointed with books, paintings, and tasteful furnishings. I took a seat on a leather couch while he settled into one of the chairs opposite me, twisting and turning in unpredictable fashion, the product of his restless energy and symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which he talks about openly in the film. A coughing fit had him up again, haunting for cough, hunting for cough drops while I shriveled in my seat, overtaken by my unusual anxieties. I had arrived early at his building and sat for a few minutes in the lobby using one of his tools to compose myself before meeting him. But I felt extremely self-conscious as we began our conversations, my lifelong stammer growing more cumbersome as I extorted myself to just relax. Sensing my discomfort, Stutz sprang into therapeutic action. He threw me a pack of, fun opened index cars, of unopened index cards and asked me to unwrap them. He moved beside me on the couch holding a clipboard, and with shaky hands started diagramming essential aspects of his theory that would benefit a case as unsensitious as my own. Partial to communicating key concepts to his patients through schematics, he drew a circle. Then asked me to write inside inside it the words I am. Then he sketched a moon-like figure that was almost spooning the sphere uh, representing me. Inside the shape he wrote the words you are not. This I am circle is the definition of who you are, he explained. If you let anybody else get inside your head, you've lost your identity. You have to protect this. The you are not shape represents what he calls part X. The enemy, the destructive force, part of the universe, will never be vanquished. But the obstacles and difficulties it throws up can be framed as catalysts for growth. Stutz thinks, part of, uh, thinks of part X as an uneradicable evil that is always threatening to nullify our being. His work is designed to prevent his patients from falling into the inertia and regression that are the common responses to hardships and unfairness. Okay. But what if the you are not energy has gained entry enter, entry into the i am sphere and the negativity is coming from inside the house? I posed the questions as disinterestedly as possible, but it was clear I wasn't asking for a friend. The visitor has to be expelled, he said with a barely with barely a pause. And the force that ex, that expels the condiments, that source is rage. Just as if you took a piss on my office, I'd say Get the hell out of here. But this isn't personal rage. It has purpose, which is cleanliness, getting rid of all the bogeys. Psychoanalysts, he said, are helpless to to tackle this problem. Some of them have done good work, but they can't solve this because they have no plan to admit what the issue is, nor do they have any tools to challenge it. For Stutz, action, not endless speculation, or what he calls loose talk, is the answer. In Western culture, the assumption is I have to have a certain level of success in order to feel good about myself, even to feel human. But it's not true, he says. What you have to do is take action before you know who you are, before you know what's supposed to happen. If you can do that, then you can become confident. My self-deprecating remarks, a knee-jerk reflex with me, didn't amuse him. Self-attack is a sin, and it's an ignorant sin, he said. Not because there's nothing wrong with you, it's that we don't attack ourselves for any reason. We just don't do it, and that's a law. But later, he interrupted the discussion for some encouragement. By the way, you're doing fantastically well so far, like really well. It's very heartening. He pointed out how much clearer, in my, speech, clearer my speech had become in just a few minutes. That usually happens when I move out of a performance mode into just being mode but Stutz's rambunctions' concern invited that that shift. What separates Stutz's system from more gimmicky pop psychology is the idea that the goal isn't a, a specific outcome, but a commitment to a sustained journey. Personality is a process, he argues, something you discover from the steps you take in the world. His existentialist teaching is as much a spiritual education as it is therapeutic endeavor. What does he call what he does? I call it a study and application of the laws of human development, whether you want to call it psychoanalysts, Sunday school, or Big Ten track squad, he said. It doesn't matter. And the little things are actually more valuable than the big things because they are um, there are more of them, like a hundred times. The tools are designed to keep a person moving forward in the face of ceaseless challenge which is is humanity's lot. The person who needs to understand everything in order for him to assess and improve problem areas, that person is wasting his life, even with a shrink, with the best of motivations, he said. Why has his work caught on in Hollywood? Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara are among the producers of Stux, and TMZ would no doubt pay a king's ransom for the files of his celebrity patients. It's not what people think, he said. What attracts him is that I'm very fast, I'm very intuitive, and I'm very practical. It would attract anybody. It's just that these people have the money they all, they, and they all know each other. The documentary reviews the fundamentals of Stutz's psychology, but he introduced me to a tool that wasn't covered. When I was in the lobby of his building preparing for the interview, he said I would have benefited from his cosmic rage too. I was all ears. I learned this tool from two actresses in new york he said what they would do when they were nervous on say opening nights when there were critics in the house is that before the show started they'd stand behind the curtain and scream blank you go back to jersey i don't give a blank what you think you piece of blank and then they would relax give a credible rendering of what they were trying to do when the curtain went up so should i So I should have cursed you out when heading up the elevator, I asked. Some people do it silently, but they radiate rage, and the key of the rage is it's 360 degrees, he said. You try to get yourself in this cosmic rage space and then keep it going. The point, I gathered, is to harness our own power by rejecting external definitions of the self, and to see that our actions are stronger than the imagined thoughts of someone else. He, he named Carl Jung as a minor influence on his work and Rudolf Steiner as a major influence. Both of these thinkers had an abiding interest in the occult, which Stoltz shares. He, the tools he has developed are said to give the user access to higher forces that he avoids discussing in religious terms. But his psychology has an otherworldly dimension, as the film elliptically touches on near the end. When he lies down on a bed and grapples with the haunting legacy of his younger brother's death in childhood. How does he feel about the film he spent years making with one of his patients? I'll tell you exactly how I feel. Number one, Jonah is going to be a big time, all time director. That's my first conclusion, he said. But the second is a little different. I thought I did a good job. I wasn't spectacular jonah was really spectacular but even he with his level of insight and courage wasn't the highest level of what was going on the highest level is that god dropped a bomb on los angeles all the truth that came out of the movie wasn't the result of either of us it was god dropping on us a tremendous opportunity noticing that his energy was visibly drained after our intense hour together i asked if there were any final thoughts he wanted to share before I left. No, actually, he said, unable to resist a touching moment. Don't be in that journalistic mode. Just be humble and do what I'm telling you. And remember, you're an ignorant blank. And that more, more, more is less, less, less. That was fun, he said, as he accompanied me out of his office. I don't think I've ever done an interview like that before. Me either, I replied. That was... In Therapy with Philip Stutz Shrink to the Stars by Charles McNulty, theater critic. And from the same calendar section, the Los Angeles Times study, January 22, 2023. Writing Past Wrongs on the set. Marley Matten makes her directorial debut on Fox's Accused, creating an atmosphere that nurtures deaf talent in the process. With Soraya Roberts Etobicoke, Ontario. The set of Marley Matlin's directorial debut is the quietest I've ever visited. It's not completely absent sound, there's a low murmur, people quietly conferring between takes. But it is faint enough that when the DIY air conditioner kicks in and the bag overhead suddenly inflates with a bang, I jump. In the distance I hear action and I will later hear cut, but otherwise a differentially low volume permeates the space. The source of the minimal sound is Matlin herself small but commanding sporting a blonde bob and pickup top directing a courtroom scene with a series of hand gestures lots of thumbs up all around and the occasional word i can't hear her interpreter from my position but that's partly because the two of them are always right next to whoever they're speaking with i do however hear extras wrangle wrangler at uh, at one point loudly requesting an uptick in energy big trial big trial Big trial, big deal. It's the end of June, and we're inside the huge studio complex in Etobicoke, Ontario, on Toronto's west side, where filming is underway on Fox's new crime anthology, Accused, an adaptation of creator Jimmy McGovern's Cracker 2010 British original. Produced by Sunny Pictures Television and premiering Sunday, each episode of the series starts with a character facing a verdict in court, then dives into the story of what led them there. And as as executive producer Howard Gordon puts it, this is less a whodunit than a what happened. Matlin's episode, airing Tuesday, centers around Ava, a deaf surrogate played by deaf actor Stephanie Noguras, who abducts the baby, who also turns out to be deaf, and whose parents, Aaron Ashmore and Megan Boone, are considering cochlear implants. Accused uses directors with personal experience that aligns with each story, hence deaf actor Matlin, fresh off of CODA's awards sweep, stepping behind the camera here. Two other deaf actors also make up the cast, Joshua Castile as Ava's boyfriend and Laura Ridloff as her public defender. Says Gordon, it was really compelling to us to be able to tell the story of with some depth with someone who has actually been at the front line between the, hearings wor- the hearing world and the deaf world. For her part, Matlin does not look the least bit nervous when I meet her. Through her windowed mask to accommodate COVID-19 restrictions and to allow for lip reading, she emanates competence and warmth even on the final days of a nine-day shoot, and despite my own communications learning curve. I, I know to watch her, her, her instead of the interpreter. Everyone in set was given a best practices sheet, but I'm so habituated to, uh, to watching who is speaking that I keep doing it by, by mistake anyway. Matlin is, in short, the kind of person you want in charge in an emergency. During a subsequent Zoom interview, uh, so one of my questions is, I say, one of my questions is lame, and she cheerfully scolds, stop being negative. She reminds me of my mother, a woman who refuses not, uh, not to brightly soldier on. The way, accused, the way the accused gig came to Matlin w- uh, would instill positivity in anyone. Her agent mentioned to Gordon that she wanted to direct. At that precise moment, Gordon had the perfect script for her. I guess it just happened at the right time when I was thinking about it, Matlin says. It was almost like karma. Her initial interest came from the fact that it was a story about her community, her culture, her language. She hasn't been a surrogate, but she could identify with the protective instinct for a baby who happens to be deaf. Ironically, though, Gordon's initial idea was simply an episode about surrogacy based on a real story he read about a baby with Down syndrome. It was Melie Melloy, the short story writer and friend of Gordon's to whom he had pitched the show at, at a party, who conceived the idea of the deaf surrogate. Malloy had already uh, been taking American Sign Language classes because she was working on the Netflix show Society, which had a deaf character. When the series shut down during the pandemic, she continued learning the language of, and about deaf culture. At the same time, She had read Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree, but traits children don't always share with their parents. Malloy realized that what Solomon had written about scientific advances outpacing the ethics around them applied to deafness as well. Matlin came on during the the online stage and read every draft. Even before they hit the set, Malloy was convinced Matlin was up to the job. I knew from watching her as an actress and an activist that she'd be a great director, she says. She's so confident and magnetic that people just want to follow her. That confidence isn't impervious to setbacks, though, and Matlin remembers the beginning of the pandemic as a difficult period. Sometimes you felt excluded because masks weren't always like the masks that we had on the set, Matlin said. It didn't feel good for me as somebody who depends on lip reading. The majority of the time, she, communicated, she communicates face-to-face during a take, which I noticed during the shoot. She was either leaning over a desk next to a cast member or standing right in front of them. To communicate, Matlin uses a combination of her own voice, interpreters, and signing. Uh, there are variations between Canadian and American signing, as there are across the all countries. But as Malloy points out, Signing is still useful if you're speaking to someone across the room and want to keep a quiet set. The only difference between between hearing the actors and the deaf actors was the fact that I could sign freely with the deaf actors, Matlin says. The actual job of directing them was the same. Which is not to say she didn't ask for help before the shoot. Matlin reached out to a couple of people to ask what she needed to be aware of as a first-time director. And everyone told her the same thing, that she would be asked uh, endless questions and should always have an answer prepared. She narrowed it down to five. Yes, no, maybe, what do you think, and I don't know. Rettling gives a longer answer when I ask her how far Hollywood has come in its treatment of deaf talent. She says between 1986's Children of a Lesser God, her Oscar-winning film debut, and 2021's Coda, which won the Best Picture Oscar, and in which she starred alongside two other deaf actors. The change had been really slow, but when she got the script for Coda, she knew that she was the ti- that was the tipping point. The bottom line is that you had three authentic deaf actors carrying the film. We weren't uh we weren't we weren't background. We weren't you know little tokens. She says there were so many things that struck people that were new. But yet so familiar. Now we realize, we, they realize we exist. There was riding past wrongs on the set, by Soraya Roberts, from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. All right, and we have this one from the calendar section, of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. A welcome disturbance. Brendan Cronenberg shares the strange trip behind his film by mark olson park city utah over three feature films brandon Cronenberg has carved out a a distinctive style for himself a blend of horror and sci-fi that musters an all-too-aware audience response of genuine shock his latest film infinity pool may be the most disturbing and unsettling film at sundance this year forcing viewers to confront what they might actually be capable of all told in a hallucinatory, brain-melting, head-spinning style. In the film, James, Alexander Skarsgård, and his wife Em, Cleopatra Coleman, uh, go on holiday to a remote all-inclusive resort in hopes of breaking through his writer's block. Since the publication of one book some years ago, James has been unable to finish anything else and essentially lives off of Em's family money. After they meet the enigmatic Gabby, Mia Goth, They go with her for an excursion outside the resort grounds. When James kills someone with a car in an accident, he is faced with the decision of whether to be executed or pay to have an exact double of himself created and killed in his place. This leads James into a decadent underworld that forces him to face himself in unexpected ways. Shot in Croatia and Hungary, the film is reminiscent of, but not too much time, not too much quite analogous to other recent projects skewering the blinkered lives of the wealthy and the privileged, such as Triangle of Sadness, Succession, Glass Onion, The Menu, or The White Lotus. Cronenberg's film is too psychotronic and just plain weird for that, obsessed as it is with death and depravity alongside responsibility and accountability. Ahead of the festival, Cronenberg and Goth joined the Times on a video call together, while Skarsgård was interviewed separately due to a shooting schedule on the next season of Succession. Skarsgård had been told good things about Cronenberg before the shoot by his friend Andrea Reisenborough, who starred in Cronenberg's previous film, Possessor. Yet Skarsgård still wasn't prepared for the person he encountered compared to the movies that Cronenberg makes. He's such a gentle, sweet, unassuming guy, so humble," says Skarsgård. "And the fact that he comes up with these crazy, twisted, dark hedonistic stories—maybe it's his way of, con- of, con- of conducting therapy—that is cathartic in the way that that darkness comes from, comes out in his writing. Because he's definitely not what I expected when I met him," as Goth put it. One of the things that I love about Brandon's movies is the fact that it's not a sit back and relax type of experience. Where you watch his movies and it's lean in and engage from the very first scene, you are locked in. Question, Brandon, did you go on a v- bad vacation? Or was that the initial impulse behind the story? Brandon Cronenberg, I did go on a bad vacation. Is it that obvious? Honestly, it was kind of a mashup quite a while ago. Uh, I've been I've been writing a short story specifically about the clone executions. It was essentially the first execution scene in a story, and when I started expanding it, I ended up coming back to memories of this uh, this weird vacation that I'd had many years ago. The only time I went to a traditional all-inclusive resort, I think it was in the Dominican Republic. I think about that trip uh, was that there was there w- they would bus you in in the middle of the night to the resort compound you just step off the bus into this completely enclosed compound that was actually encased by razor wire fences hidden by palm leaves and you're stuck on this compound it was a kind of fake town that you could buy stuff at and the Chinese restaurant and the guy on the ATV were, were from that vacation and then at the end of the week They drive you back during the day and you would see that, actually, there was this really incredible poverty just beyond the resort, the people living in shacks. It was obviously a very disturbing and grotesque contrast. But also there's something so completely surreal about the experience because it's almost like you were visiting a completely separate state other than the host state. It was like a completely different world or another dimension that had sort of popped up in this country, like a weird growth. And the fact that inside that growth, you existed in a complete Disneyland version of reality was survival. And it felt like a good setting for this story about consequence free characters. uh, Mia, question, Mia, what about, what appealed to you about the story when uh, it was first presented to you? Mia Goth. I was in the middle of filming Pearl, actually, and that shoot was really intense. We were doing six-day weeks, like 12, 14, 15-hour days, regarding, regardless of all that. The first Sunday I had off, I woke up, and I had my breakfast, and had my coffee, and the first thing I did was I opened the script and started reading it. And I knew about four pages in, I was like, wow, this is wild. I have to do this. I love Gabby. Reading the script the first time around, she even fooled me. She presents herself in so many different ways within the movie, and I thought she was going to be one thing, and she took me on this wild ride with her. Question. Alexander, the, uh, coming after the Northmen, this feels like such a huge pivot to play this character that's so weak and humiliated throughout the movie. This is not a typical leading man part at all. Alexander Skarsgård. The Northman was such a monumental, thrilling, and exhausting experience. It was arguably the most rewarding creative experience of my life. But I I was completely drained after that because not only did we spend almost a year shooting the Northman, but it was many years in the making and developing the movie and living with that character in that world. I read Infinity Pool when we were shooting the Northman in Northern Ireland, so it was towards the, uh, the tail end of... Of the shoot and just reading something that was totally diff so different a character that wasn't a hero or had any of those alpha male qualities he definitely wasn't a leader of men and he definitely had uh, lower levels of teta- testosterone than i on the northmen and that really excited me it was just so fun to imagine going into that after the northmen brandon I found the movie to be so destabilizing, I felt genuinely emotionally unmoored when it was over. How do you describe that? What to you is the tone of the movie? Cronenberg I don't really describe the tone of the movie, is the answer, and I sort of don't want to because I feel a certain degree you want the audience to explore. Certain kinds of filmmaking end up working as laboratories for the mind to explore these difficult emotions and feelings and to me, that's why I like this kind of filmmaking. I like being put in a position where you are destabilized when uh, you're watching a film. I think that kind of art is more transformative, taking you to places that might be difficult, but also allow you to engage uh, engage with aspects of your brain that you might not in a day-to-day way. I think that's really healthy. I think that's something that I really like in art, so I don't want to tell people what tone, what the tone is. I think that's some sort of that's sort of hard to categorize, but I also don't want to paint the film as being something in particular for people. I want them to have a chance to explore it on their own and define it for themselves. (coughs) Question How do you conceive of the actual mechanics of how the doubling process occurs? Do you like taking this sort of fantastic idea and making it as much of a reality as you can? Cronenberg Yes. Although, I'd say in this film, it's deliberately a bit absurd and not really meant to be a convincing hard sci-fi movie about cloning technology. It's really kind of like magic realism, or in that spirit, because it's more of a metaphorical point. I mean, why would this technology exist only in this country? It's not meant to make sense in a kind of literal sci-fi world building way. It's meant to be a, a little bit dreamlike and strange to them to be able to get to the other stuff and, of course, it's fun to design it. And some of the designs came from our experiences location lo- location hunting. We were in countries that actually had histories of authoritarianism and communism. We shot in this t- old power station. The exterior of it was an aesthetic that we borrowed from the location. And so it was very much defined by our experiences over there, rather than something that was totally designed and then forced into. Goth, That power station was amazing. That was one of my favorite shooting locations I've ever been on. I've never seen anything like that. It was huge and still strangely intact. Skarsgard, I love the way they designed all that because it felt very rudimentary and rough. Because when you think of the fact that they're capable of cloning a body, you would imagine it to be in a more futuristic sci-fi environment where it's this very austere, clean lab and they do it in a high-tech cool fashion with computers and stuff but this is very manual and very analog with big hoses and weird ass. i thought that it was a really interesting choice by brandon to go in that direction in, instead of making it look futuristic it was all like a dirty old east european factory question mia there's a movement in the movie there's a moment in the movie where you're Lying on the hood of a car as it's slowly moving and you're eating from a bucket of chicken as Alex walks in front of that car. The image is really absurd but also really unnerving. Did that movement stick to you? Goth. Yes, because it's a wide, a wild scene. But really, every day on Brightness, I felt like I was sitting on the hood of a car eating a bucket of chicken. Cronenberg. Can we put that on the Blu-ray? Could that be a cover quote? Goth. What I mean by that is Brandon as a director is so trusting and he gives so much freedom to his actors and it's such a joy to to work with a director like that. Really, I think that's the sign of a great director. Someone who chooses their actors and feels that they're appropriate for the role and then after that they're really able to kind of release control of the character and just let that actor explore and play with it and ultimately have a lot of fun with it. And so there wasn't a dull day on set. Every day was a different adventure. There was a different wild situation that we were finding ourselves in. And so I guess the scene with the chicken is kind of the climax of what the whole shooting experience was. Skarsgård. The scene was a fantastic day. When uh, when we get to get into that, when he when he tries to get away, it's also kind of weird and pathetic and sad that there's that fight. And she's just laughing at him. It's just this really humili- humiliating moment for him. And most of the movie is humiliating, just like the sequence uh, sequence of a humiliation moment for for him for him. Just just like a sequence of humiliation moments for him. But I just remember turning around, looking at Mia having this little picnic on the hood, and they're slowly driving by. It's so funny in that scene. Question, Brandon. I had the pleasure of talking to your father David Cronenberg last year when his movie Crimes of the Future was coming out and he talked about how excited he was uh, that uh, he was that when he was shooting his movie in Greece you weren't in you weren't that far away shooting your your movie in Croatia was it fun for you to be close to him while you were both shooting Cronenberg it was cute i think he had a better Uh, A better hat than I had, uh, though, so that was a little bit uncomfortable for me. Question. Like his onset directing hat? Cronenberg. His onset directing hat was much better than mine, from what I understand. So that was maybe a problem. Question. Unlike a lot of people who come from uh, notable families, you seem quite open about being influenced by your father's work. You don't seem to mind people comparing them. Was it difficult for you to acknowledge your father's uh, influence on your own work? Cronenberg, I don't know if I've necessarily acknowledged it. That's a bit of a loaded question. It was always going to be the case when I got into movies and I didn't want to worry about it because I think deliberately avoiding anything that would be considered related to his work uh, would be defining my own art in relation to his art. And I actually don't want to do that. So for my own work, I'm just following my own interests and preoccupations, and if there's some overlap or related, I guess that's natural. That was a welcome disturbance by Mark Olson from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, January twenty-fourth, twenty twenty-three. Alright, let's read some articles from the Jewish Journal for January twentieth to the twenty-sixth, twenty twenty three this is called Ken Rothman's main contribution is to anti-semitism not human rights by Gerald M Steinberg this is from the my turn section for 30 years as the head of the powerful human rights watch organization Ken Roth was a leading source of anti-israel demonization often uh, crossing the threshold into anti-semitism as a result the campaign he, orchestrate, he is orchestrating to condemn Harvard University's rejection of his application for a fellowship at the Kennedy School of Government is an important issue for the Jewish community and beyond. According to the version of events put out by Roth and his supporters and echoed in numerous media reports, the school's dean, Professor Douglas Elm- Elmendorf, vetoed the recommendation of Roth's allies in the human rights program, citing his criticisms of Israel's human rights record. The refusal to give Roth, who has no scholarship credentials, a prestigious title at Harvard is falsely labeled a dangerous violation of academic freedom. In addition, and without producing any evidence, they imagine a conspiracy involving nefarious Jewish donors. Following standard procedures, Elmendorf and the University have not commented, leaving room for rumors and speculation. Details of Roth's actual history of intense hostility towards Israel, Zionists, and the mainstream American Jewish community are deliberately ignored and erased in order to support the myth that he merely criticizes the Jewish state in a manner no different than other countries. In fact, Under the facade of human rights and an invented or imagined form of international law, Roth repeatedly singled out Israel using uniquely poisonous language regarding everything related to self-determination and sovereignty for the Jewish people. The extreme disproportionate and abuse of labels such as apartheid, war crimes, and collective punishment are obvious in even a cursory examination of this record this uh, the millions that he raised including from a corrupt saudi billionaire to pump into the bds movement and to hire a team of of proven israel haters contributed significantly to the anti-semitic atmosphere particularly on university campuses a listing of Ruff's vituperous attacks including hrw publications for which he is accountable and the lies, distortions, and unverifiable accusations will fill volumes. But a small sample provides more than enough to demonstrate the deep hostility. Roth and HRW are among the instigators of the renewed campaign to single out and target Israel by attacking the apartheid label picking up from the Soviet and Arab League propaganda of the 1960s and 70s, including the UN's famous Zionism is Racism resolution. In 21, HRW was a core participant in the anti-Semitic UN Durban conference where this theme was revived and under Roth's active leadership continue to push the smear. In 2021, they marketed a 217 page propaganda publication under the heading A Threshold Cross Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution, and consisting of blatant falsehoods, lies, and distortions. Apartheid states, specifically in the case of South Africa, inherently have no right to exist, and this is the fate that Roth seeks for Israel. On a parallel front, Roth often displays a deep and you know, personal hostility to Judaism and the Jewish people. In 20, oh, 2006, after HRW was criticized for a campaign demonizing the IDF's response to a gruesome Hezbollah attack from Lebanon, Roth wrote, An eye for an eye, or more accurately in this case, 20 eyes for an eye, may have been the morality of some more primitive moment. As Abram Foxman, head of the ADL at the time, observed, Roth's comments repeated a classic anti-Semitic stereotype about Jews. In parallel, Roth repeatedly blames Jews and Israel for the dangerous increase in anti-Semitic and at at times deadly violence. In 2014, he attributed violent attacks against Jews and synagogues in Germany and Europe to Israel's so-called war crimes during the Gaza War. In the context of the 2017 white supremacist march in Charlottesville, Roth endorsed a propaganda piece published by a platform reportedly linked to the Muslim Brotherhood and headlined, Birds of a Feather, White Supremacy and Zionism. Roth included a picture depicting a Confederate and Israeli flag, commenting, many rights activists condemn the Israeli abuse and anti-Semitism. Some white supremacists embrace Israel and anti-Semitism. And in 2021, Roth tweeted, "...the surge in UK anti-Semitic incidents during the recent Gaza conflict gives the lie to those who pretend that the Israel, Israeli government's conduct doesn't affect anti-Semitism." After intense criticism, Roth later deleted the last tweet, claiming he was "...misunderstood." But given the extensive track record of abusing and exploiting human rights for anti-Semitism, this excuse wears thin. Instead, Roth uses his Jewish roots as a shield and odiously seeks to use the Holocaust, specifically his father's experience growing up in Nazi Germany, as a means to justify his hostility to Israel. Adding to the indictment is the fact that in the 30 years during which Roth ran HRW, the organization's reporting on an acknowledgement of anti-Semitism is largely non-existent. Regardless of the reasons for the for Harvard's rejection of Roth's fellowship application, and in the absence of an official statement from the school, the accuracy of the claims cannot be assessed. It is important to counter the vilification of the deem and efforts to portray a catalogue of antisemitism as benign criticism. Human rights and hate are at opposite ends of any moral spectrum, and the attempts to conflate them must not be tolerated. That was Ken Ruff's main contribution is to anti-Semitism, not human rights, by Gerald M. Steinberg from the My Turn section. Gerald M. Steinberg heads, heads NGO Monitor and is the emeritus professor of political science at Bar Ilan University. All right, and again from the My Turn section, this is called "Who's Afraid of the West?" by Blake Flayton. Natalie Wynn, known by her YouTube channel name as ContraPoints, is an internet personality as intelligent as she is hilarious a few times a year if we're lucky when publishes a feature film length video essay online impressively produced with costumes and sets on a controversial topic she and presumably her audience is obsessed with such topics would uh, uh such topics such topics have included envy addiction jk rowling beauty and capitalism But one ContraPoints video I am routinely drawn back to above the others is dedicated to the West, more specifically to the term itself which is often used but seldom understood. As a politically involved new immigrant to Israel, frequently immersed in conversations surrounding Jewish identity, religion, governance, and and conflict, the notion of the West is something I am confronted with daily. And since Israel's recent election, it feels like something I read about on an hourly basis. But what does the term really mean? And what are its implications, especially when talking about Israel? It's easy to take for granted that there is a historically uh, continuous, clearly defined thing called Western civilization that starts in ancient Athens and flourishes in our own era, says Wynne. She continues, But this is really just a story constructed retrospectively by modern people for particular purposes. In other words, one's own definition of the West usually depends on how they themselves would like it to be characterized, depending on their political ideology. For example, A right-wing populist may think of the West as civilizations made up predominantly of white Christians and will will use the term as a bludgeon against immigrants and refugees who come from non-white, non-Christian countries. An academic might think of the West as any society that continues Greco-Roman traditions of democracy, whereas a philosopher might think of the West as that which rises from a specifically secular observation of the world. A classic liberal might think the West is comprised of societies that institutionally protect minorities, both ethnic and religious, whereas a leftist may regard the West primarily as a vehicle of colonialism and exploitation. The truth is that all of these definitions and none of these definitions are correct because the notion of the West is malleable and subjective. Even ideas that come from irrefutably Western places like the nineteenth century Germany or France are often in stark contradiction with each other. Communism versus capitalism, civic versus ethnic nationalism, democracy versus fascism. Think of it this way: it can be argued that Adolf Hitler didn't necessarily betray Western ideals by killing six million Jews, considering that the reactionary nationalism that gave birth to the Third Reich was fundamentally a child of Western thinking. Karl Marx didn't betray the values of the West by advocating for a workers' revolution against the propertied class because Marx's ideas were rooted in Western academic tradition. Both the neo-Nazi and the progressive professor are correct in their characterizations of Western civilization because it has, at one point or another, championed their own world view. Now zoom into Israel year 2023. The West is often the start of an argument between the Jewish state's many factions. First, the West is sometimes portrayed by those who fall on the more religious and right-wing side of the spectrum as a boogeyman that has come to chip away at the Jewish identity of both the individual uh, Israeli and the state of Israel, an agent for assimilation, the Hellenistic uh, force permitting Judea in our modern era. Rabbi Yeshai Fleischer, a Hebrew-Hebron local who advocates for continued Jewish settlement in the West Bank and a more traditionally religious society within Israel, told the Daily Beast, I know i to handle problems in a Semitic manner, not necessarily in a Western manner, and, not to, uh, and to understand that sometimes Western ideas, including Jewish leftist ideas, are actually col- colonial ideas. He continues, For example, the two-state solution, that is absolutely a Western colonial model. Rabbi Fleischer is a supporter of Rabbi Yehuda Hakuen, a charismatic speaker gaining traction in young diaspora circles for advocating continued Jewish settlement from the river to the sea and the further entrenchment of spirituality within Israel proper. After Israel's election in November, HaKon decried Israel's westernized liberal Zionist ruling class that is uh, primarily concerned with the material well-being of the Jewish security, economy, diplomacy, etc., but maintains a very European sense of national identity while remaining largely estranged from the ancient values and traditions of Am Yisrael. These characters advocate for policies that are considered ultra-nationalist yet rail against the West in presenting their ideas. In contrast, many uh, both in Israel and the United States support the very same proposals, but make use of the West as a positive, not a negative. Some argue that the sentiments of the West are a bulwark of the West against an Islamic caliphate stretching all the way from Tel Aviv to Kabul and on social issues, conservative politicians in the United States cite Jewish traditions as a foundation of the West, which in their minds rests upon the Judeo-Christian values founded in the Hebrew Bible. Politicians on both the left and right may justify their support for Israel because of the shared values between Israel and the United States and their shared vision for democracy, at, as the State Department notes. On the other side of the aisle, The West is utilized just as often. The Israeli mainstream left, which opposes right-wing policies in the West Bank and favors secularism over Halakha in the public square, marches toward a vision of Israel that is a European-style Western country, a Vienna on the Mediterranean as Theodor Herzl envisioned it. After the most recent election, this once-dominant Israeli vision appears to be slipping away. In contrast, Those on the more fringe left in Israel and the diaspora regard Israel as already the embodiment of the West, only proven by the most recent elections. In their often anti-Semitic view, Zionism is the poster child for the West, an instrument of colonialism and disposition. Palestinian intellectual Edward Said famously wrote of Zionism in 1979, There is an unmistakable coincidence between the experiences of Arab Palestinians at the hands of Zionism and the experiences of those black, yellow, and brown people who were described as inferior and subhuman by 19th century imperialists. If one thing can be learned from all these observations, it's that the West is no longer a useful term in discussions about Israel. The idea is too subjective, too open to interpretation, and too revealing of political priors that might as well be said without uh, without needles of obfuscations. If the idea of the West is so flimsy that it can be used to buttress any anyone in everyone's argument, it becomes tedious. If you want one state or two states, say it. If you want the rabbinite in charge of more state affairs, or the start of civil marriage and the expansion of public transportation on Shabbat, say it. There is no need to bring up a term with a definition hardly ever agreed upon. At the end of her video essay, Wynne provocatively proposes the abolition of the concept of the West in its entirety. We should get rid of it altogether, she states forthrightly, and adopt a more common cosmopolitan understanding of ourselves and acknowledge that the world is too complicated to reduce to simple us and them and them uh, binaries. Living in Israel for only four months has led me to agree with her. That was Who's Afraid of the West by Blake Flayton from the My Turns section. Flayton is the new media director and columnist for the Jewish Journal. All right, let's uh, conclude with this. This is called For a Small Fee, a poem for a Parsha Vieira Aliyah five by Rick Lupert. Stretch forth your staff and strike the dust of the earth, and it shall become lice throughout the entire land of Egypt. Exodus eight twelve. <clears throat> and oh yeah, there was the time when we dropped someone off at the sum at the Summer Camp who, for the sake of avoiding embarrassment, will remain anonymous But suffice it to say, it was not myself or my beloved, and, oh yeah, surely after delivering him to the mountains, a communication came from the mountains themselves, and it said that there was a plague in Redacted's hair. And would you like to come back to the mountain and retrieve him, and use your magic and health insurance to rid him of the plague? And we, with plane tickets and passports in hand, prayed to the Lord for another way. And the Lord answered and said, Oh yeah, I will stretch out my hand and banish the plague from eradicate its hair, so you can travel across the ocean to your brief and Japanese promised land. And so it was done, and the summer camp called and said, It is done, but you must pay a small fee. And In exchange, you will go on your way, and we will wash everything. And the means to pay the fee were already stored in the scrolls of the mountains we and we agreed and thus the fee was paid and we took our plane tickets and our passports and we flew in the valley of a dragon to our promised land where we wandered for weeks doing nothing but eating and looking and looking and eating and having earned this having earned this freedom thank you moses thank you god thank you for peoples of the mountains and the far east there is no plague we can't overcome with a small fee that was for a small fee, a poem for Parsha Vaira Aliyah 5 by Rick Lupert. Rick Lupert, a poem, poet, song leader, and graphic designer, is the author of 26 books, including God Wrestler, a poem for every Torah portion. That'll do it for today, folks. Shalom and peace.